I am very glad to be talking with Claire Gilbert as part of a series of conversations I'm having with people who have thought directly and indirectly about how love functions in various parts of our life with a view to a project working with designers, thinking about how love can be fostered through design in personal and also more public spaces. And I think, Claire, it's going to be the public that we focus on just now, because as well as being the author of several books, a fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, um, you've been a member of several public and advisory bodies, um, the Royal Society, Number 10, um, Downing Street, a couple that stand out, but others in commercial spaces as well. And in particular, for the last few years, you've been running the Westminster Abbey Institute as its director, which is about fostering values in public life, if I can summarise it in that way. Um, so whether or not you've thought about this in relation to love directly, maybe just to begin to get into that, could, could you just say a little bit yourself in your own you know, words, so it's come from you, particularly what the Institute was about and, and what you've been trying to do there? I uh, I was asked to uh, to come and talk to some people at Westminster Abbey about setting up an institute in 2012 uh, because I'd been involved in uh, co-founding an institute at, at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral 10 years earlier. Uh, and St. Paul's Cathedral Institute uh, was set up to relate to its neighbours in the city and to look at issues that were of interest to people, not just Christians, but its neighbours. So business ethics, financial ethics, that kind of thing. So the thought was, was there something that Westminster Abbey could do for its neighbours on Parliament Square? And you have a very interesting configuration with Westminster Abbey on the south side, the Houses of Parliament to the east, the Treasury and all of Whitehall facing the Abbey on the north side, and since 2009, the Supreme Court on the west side. So you have the legislature, the executive and the judiciary on three sides of the square and then Westminster Abbey on the fourth side. Westminster Abbey got there first, of course. So whereas in previous centuries you might have said, well, the church had a place in public public conversations, that can't be assumed now and, and nor should it be. I think the church needs to earn its place at the table, uh, show that it's got something constructive and 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 unique and um, important to offer. Uh, so this was the question really for Westminster Abbey. If we are going to set up an institute and Westminster is heaving with institutes, uh, so we didn't just want to add to the chatter, was there something that we could do that no one else was doing? And I began with a feasibility study. Uh, I talked to people in these different institutions and also other public service institutions that were nearby, like the Metropolitan Police, the National Galleries, uh, the Royal Society, all a stone's throw of people at, uh, at the, palace, uh, the royal households, all a stone's throw from Westminster Abbey, and said, is there something that Westminster Abbey can do to support your work, to support what's good in your work that isn't being done perfectly well? And I met a really powerful response, which was, yes. Uh, it was a bit like meeting a brittle sponge that was so thirsty for moisture, for depth, for water, for the depth, that if you're really thirsty, it was it was a thirst for depth. So everybody's busy ruling and running the country, really busy. Mostly came into it with 
excellent motivation with real idealism and a hope to make a difference to people and the world. Uh, but ending up so involved in it that you you lose sight of all of that. So yes, please, Westminster Abbey, could you be a place where we can step back, think more deeply about the good that we're trying to do, reconnect with our vocation to public public service, think about the ethical issues that that there are with some space and safety. And um, so we knew what we what we wanted to do, which we articulated is. Um, um, revitalizing and nurturing moral and spiritual values in public life and service and to work with the public servants around Parliament Square. But we didn't know how and that we worked out over time. So we now have an established programme uh, at, the, at the Institute's 10th birthday, I'm pleased to say. But, but I experienced this over and over again, Mark, that I would meet, come into, um, uh, have an encounter with somebody in, in public life and there's a kind of dullness and then you start to ask questions and they're inevitably because of where I was coming from quite deep questions about their own motivations and where they see challenges and how they feel about that and what it's doing to their souls and something would come to life. Now I have used the word spirit. I, I, I should say the Institute is for peoples of people of any faith and no faith. So the language is appropriate to that. But actually, even even in a more secular context, you can talk about spirit, something being spirited or inspirited. And that's what it's felt like, as if something spirited within people and I hope also institutions has been kindled. But I can equally well call that love because something's melting there. Something very human and beautiful and connecting is happening. That's 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 very interesting. So. Because when there's a concern for moral standards in public life, which, you know, rightly there is and widely, this often comes across as a sort of demand. Um, and um, yes, it feels rather different then from what you're angling towards already then yeah. the work you've been doing, which yeah. is connected with these words spirit. And, and I'm glad that the word love echoes and resonates there yeah. too. Um, this yeah. is more about, I don't know, is it about a, a kind of fostering a certain, well, you say depth, um, acknowledging mm. there's a kind of depth in life and knowing how mm. to relate to that better. Um, maybe it's mm. a, as much about perception as it is about standards. I'm bringing, already yes. bringing in quite a lot of, of different things. Yes. So uh, uh, we, um, I, I, th I sometimes think of the work as us being upriver of all those compliance and discipline and, and standards and rules bit. So we're working with people uh, in such a way that moving downriver towards the standards and the compliance and everything else, these things are not a problem. You would, also, you would naturally live to a high standard because you have grown moral character and resilience in you. Now, that is only possible to do that kind of work if you can bring people into a space where they're willing to be vulnerable and open. And again, I, I mean, we haven't used the word love, actually, but we probably should, um, because it's a loving environment within which that kind of conversation becomes possible. And that's certainly what we've been seeking to cultivate and, and, and have had really important conversations. I mean, talk, getting people to talk about the, the person that often lurks quivering 
and, and worried and anxious behind the public carapace that if you're in public life, you you kind of have to wear. And you just hope it doesn't become the thing that you then, like the mask that eats into the face. You have to look after the person who's behind that. And if you don't, it will jump up and bite you in the bum. And that's why you see some really inappropriate behavior um, from some people in public life because they haven't looked after their souls. It's all been about what's on show. That's fascinating. So yes, the, yeah. So yeah. So the standards with that we're not about um, the rules. We we actually the, the seven principles of public life, the standards in public life. We do we we have worked with those, but always thinking about how to bring them to life in your heart, not 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 them as a rule. Um, because you know, you say one of them is honesty. Let's say, well, let, we're not going to quarrel with honesty. Of course, honesty is good and right. But how do you live in that way? And that requires some self-examination and honesty, <laughs> self-honesty, and and recognition of times when it's not possible, and their aspirations rather than rules. Uh, and so, so cultivating a, a character that is open to that and and open to its own fallibility as well is i think it's a much more intelligent way of going about it um and 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 would serve far better and far more effectively than just making more rules or more disciplinary procedures procedures become a a way that an institution can avoid looking into its own heart hmm. there's so much in what you're saying um the talking about space and safety and character. I mean, when you linked spirit and love, you talked about things melting, which I guess implies yes. the possibility of change as well as self-reflection. Yes. Um, yes. And that that requires a whole context that, as you're just intimating there right at the end, is very different from procedures and I guess the bureaucracy as well as the public, maybe quite harsh scrutiny often quite rightly yeah. so, but nonetheless, harsh scrutiny um, that comes, um, that faces people in public life. So over the last 10 years, um, you know, with, with dozens, if not hundreds of people now that you've been working with, how, um, what kind of um, spaces, what kind of activities, and what kind of procedures even, um, do foster that, do enable, mm. um, people to really come with all that they are, touch this depth, but have the freedom yeah. almost to respond to it and to reconsider um, what they're doing. Yeah, um, we, so we have public programs, we have private conversations, and we have a fellows program, and we also have publications um, coming out of the public programs. Uh, the, the, the public program is the entry place, you might say, we do have this wonderful uh, facility, I suppose, of Westminster Abbey itself. So the very act of walking into Westminster Abbey changes something. You come out of your busy government department or, or the Palace of Westminster or wherever, and you come into this space where people have prayed and asked for help and sought wisdom for a thousand years uh, and repented. <laughs> for a thousand years, um, which has also seen tremendous disruption, worse disruption than anything we've seen in the last 10 years, although they've been disruptive enough, enough this, this 
this this past period. But honestly, they're not as bad as the civil war still yet. Um, and the Abbey has has seen all of that. So you move into this space and already something's working on you. A kind of magic is working on you. And then you come and sit down and you hear somebody speak. And, and the, le the lectures and dialogues, we try to make them transformative in some way. So at, that, at this stage, addressing people's hearts. Um, just this week, we had the most astonishing conversation dialogue between Lord Hastings, who does a lot of work in prisons, and uh, um, someone who who's li has lived experience of the prison system in dialogue talking to policymakers. And so we're getting into people's hearts even at this public stage. But what we found very quickly as we were setting things up in the in the early days is that there was a real need for a private space as well. So policy, um, civil servants, politicians, um, judges, the police, they needed a space where no one was listening, where they could just work things out. They, they, they face tremendous tremendous challenges uh the inherent moral di um discomfort of being a civil servant when you're both um the, the servant of the democratically elected minister but you're also custodian of propriety you have to navigate that know when you've got to say something and know when you simply do do as the minister wills because we live in a democracy um the kind of ethical dilemmas that the police face every day the constable on the street goes to a situation which is complex enough to keep a moral philosopher going for 10 years and they have to deal with it instantly um, and, and so on. And, 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 then, and then politicians being obliged in the pitiless 24-7 glare of, of the public to come to a view, to state, say where they stand, um, all very, very quickly. So to be in a place where it's safe enough to work that out, where you're going to something might come out of your mouth that made publicly could be judged um, or deliberately taken and used against you. You're, you're in a space where that's not going to happen. So we've created several of those uh, um, invitation only seminars, usually in the Jerusalem chamber, which is another beautiful space. Uh, no tech, no technology. Um, and tea and cake and an invitation to even song and a private tour of the Abbey and a glass of wine at the end. So there's a, there's a whole package which serves to, um, to nourish intellectually, to restore some sense of moral agency, uh, to, to, uh, to say thank you, to show appreciation, to recognize and to feed the soul with beautiful music and exquisite architecture. <laughs> I mean, it's an, it is a wonderful thing that Westminster Abbey can do for these people who serve the public. So we have these spaces. And then the third is these invitation only spaces, private spaces. And then the third setting, um, which is the one where we go to most depth is our fellows program, which, um, which so each year about 15 younger public servants they're not that young they tend to be deputy director level so first level of the senior civil service so already some responsibility maybe major or lieutenant colonel in the arm in the army or equivalent across the armed forces um um and also uh, a politician or two uh, serving mp uh someone in the Metropolitan Police, Minister of Religion, maybe a teacher, someone in academia, someone from the sciences, someone from the arts, 
So a, a good mixture of people, a journalism, we've always included journalism in public, in our sense of who are public servants. Uh, and But nobody comes from the same office. So interestingly, that creates safety because there's no one in the room who can affect your career. But you are in the room with people who understand what it is you're trying to do, even if they're doing it differently. It's all about public service. And we're there in order to deepen our understanding of public service and make ourselves better public servants. So we're all there for the same reason. And we meet six times over the year, three residential, three non-residential. And, and they hear from our senior people, our senior fellows and council of reference who are typically just retired Metropolitan Police Commissioner or Lord Chief Justice, those kind of people, about what it's like on the inside to have these very um, senior roles and how you got there and what happened to your idealism and are you cynical now and what do you feel about your institutions now and, and the chance to ask questions again in an entirely private space. Um, and the group becomes very bonded and supportive and stays in touch. So as the year, as you graduate, you become a fellow at the end of your year. And as you graduate, you then, and, and people move into more senior positions. So we've had them since 2014. Uh, they are still supporting each other. And that's a, that's a phenomenal and growing movement of people who are really committed to looking after each other's hearts and being great public servants. That's fascinating. So. Um, friendship um, becomes an important yes. uh, cultivating factor. Yes. Um, you're talking too as well about places and the spirit of places and how yes. if they are places that have fostered care, love, passion, vocation as well, I guess, is another crucial yes. word. The sense that yeah. public life can be a vocation um, that yeah. you, which you love, you want to give um, to yes. and so on. That feels like another really important factor in what you're describing. Yes, um, it very maybe much. Maybe just to throw I, in the third. Mm, um, mm. To, to, yeah, John, please comment. Please do comment on that. Well, only, I'll, 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 say, I'll come back again. I, just thinking about your this this project. Uh, the so we we do the uh, non-residential seminars in Westminster Abbey, but mostly. But the uh, but the resident seminars are at the Royal Foundation of St. Catharines in Limehouse and at Sarum College in Salisbury. And in each case, I'm very careful to make sure the room has the right feel to it. And that includes things like, is there enough air? Is it warm enough? Is the lighting right? You can't have bright glaring lights when you're bearing your soul because it's too much like an interrogation it needs to feel warm that we're in a circle and an undefended circle and I also have some rituals which I've introduced to create that sense of it, 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 it the that we we have each other's back that's the wording of the of the ritual that we begin with um, and there's there's a physical action of holding the person's back as it's made and we create a circle of holding each other's backs and saying a name saying I have your back. Um, so I'm really careful. And Serum College of course is a place where people are trained for the ministry and it's all about vocation. So I'm really careful to ensure that the physical environment as far as it's possible is conducive to the work that we're trying to do matters. It matters enormously and people are fed well and sleep well. And there's a glass of wine at, at appropriate moments. Um, all part of it. 
That's very fascinating. So um, setting up the place, but almost um, an invocation that the place can be supportive in the right way and that people care for each other in the right way. Um, the way that people come into the space, you might say, is as important um, and hence the yeah. use of ritual. Um, that that yeah. feels very rich indeed. The other element I was touch, was thinking about as you were talking was um, to do with power. And um, because, you know, public life, one way or another, is about the exercise of power. And power is often about, um, you know, imposition, coercion, um, shaping, at least, maybe slightly um, less pejorative terms. But I think when, when you think about love, there's another kind of power, which is more about allure, about being drawn um, about something that touches you and, and stirs you in your depth um, and so mm. fosters a kind of love in you that makes you want to respond. And mm. I guess that um, part of the um, the brilliance of a place like Westminster Abbey, I mean, particularly now that it's stripped of sort of secular power and is just the church with its pretty low um, standing in many people's minds in, pub in, in public mm. life, in, in, in society, certainly in the UK, and maybe there's a certain advantage to that, which is that um, its spiritual presence can shine all the more brightly. Mm. Um, and so I, I just wonder whether the, um, that thought chimes mm. with you as well, this, this sense that maybe there's a different kind of power that draws us mm. um, rather than a power that shapes and moulds us and um, that, um, that you're able to foster as well. That's That's beautifully put, Mark, if I may say so. Uh, uh, yes, so power is a is a currency, particularly for politicians. Politicians cannot ignore power. This is a this is the cost of democracy. They have to think about power. They have to think about being selected, elected, and re-elected. If you don't have power, if you're not in power, you can't do anything. You can't do your job. So you have to win power in order to do so. And that's that power. <clears throat> is interestingly well gosh this is a whole huge conversation possibly about allure more than attraction more than coercion but then you end up in a position where you you have power that that affects people you're producing policies that have real effects on real people and that's a d different kind of power but in order to gain the power you have to win the hearts of people and we're moving into territory. I mean, it could be, you could call it populism, but you could also call it love, attraction. But certainly, um, West, so Westminster Abbey, yes, it doesn't have any form. It hasn't had power conferred on it. It can't make anybody do anything, but it can. And this has always been my passion, actually. We have, we are custodians that not just in Westminster Abbey, but in the church of the most phenomenal treasury and we must share it and it's beautiful and if we can just realize that people will be attracted to it and i and i have found that to be the case in the work i've done over the decades with with um as it were is it out, <laughs> outreach of the of the church of, of bringing this beautiful this pearl of great price out into the community which is so thirsty for it. It's not church people who are thirsty for it, it's ordinary people desperately, desperately thirsty. And we, and, and, and we, uh, we owe it 
to our world to share it, find ways of sharing it, and it's hugely attractive. I mean, I guess that um, there's a two-way process in that because um, the church's power um, is, in the more pejorative sense, uh, you know, can make approaching the church very complicated for people. Um, but what you're saying is that maybe we're at a moment where um, it can be re-examined, re-presented to people. Um, and so it's beauty and, and what it stands for that is hard to find elsewhere um can be um can be seen afresh almost um but, but relatedly yeah. as well um maybe what you, that this is also talking about is is how vision matters um the sense of what it is to be human and what it is to foster a good society and um, character you mentioned character earlier yeah. um, but that sense of of who we are and who we're becoming um and and having a vision that draws us towards all that we might be as well in, in public life um you know that 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 matters maybe that's why the popularists do well is that um you know however one might respond they're not short of passion and um so they stir and touch people at a level that may be um a more bureaucratic approach to public life for all that clearly that's needed um isn't quite sure how to do um, so perhaps mm -hmm. this notion of vision and character and so on is a way of triangulating that and bringing something important back to public life that, again, feels to me to have a lot to do with love. Yes. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I mean, um, uh, so, the, so the, the political mindset is where this passion sits, really. Uh, the bureaucratic mindset, which is where the civil service is, needs to be more measured. And but there's no shortage of love. Believe me, I I I encounter it all the time with civil servants. They're full of love, but it's a quiet love. It's a it's a um and and it has its own quiet passion too. Um, and and sometimes I think the the political mindset simply doesn't understand that. So you ha and you saw this, and you still see this, really, with politicians not thinking they're civil servants and not supporting them because they're not behaving like them. But the civil service is set up precisely not to behave like politicians, not to behave with that um, that passion, but to be dispassionate, to look dispassionately at great ideas that sound good and and see how they might be carried out and tell the minister if there are going to be problems with it. Um, and I, th I think um, when it works well, it's a, it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship, but it's hard to make it work well because it requires an understanding of different mindsets. So civil servants work much harder at this than politicians do because they have to. They have to win the trust of their, their um, politicians. I, I, can I just bounce back to something you said earlier about... Um, the church. So, so one of the areas areas that's been really fruitful in this work with public servants has been meditation of some sort or another. I mean, we've introduced it into pretty much all the different places that we, in the private spaces that we that we work. Certainly with the fellows, they're given techniques, um, and with the with the politicians, spending a bit of time at the beginning of sessions just with a meditative exercise.
And I found that quite with feedback and so forth, quite often that's the thing people value more than anything, the silence, not the words. And that's a gift again. So, uh, so not known that the church can, can offer its contemplative tradition, its silence, not its words. Yes, and I mean, you know, other um, traditions um, in the West have have often been making the running with silence and how to how to use silence, how to be in silence yes. through meditative techniques. Thinking, of course, of of Buddhism and the way it's fostered yes. mindfulness. But perhaps that that's that's for the benefit of you know other traditions. I mean, I, I know this as well. Um, helping to recover um, that in the Christian tradition. Um, it also makes me think about um, how love can foster um, that sort of silence and patience um, because it can bring in a sense of attending on the transcendent or that which is not easily put into words and yet somehow is known to be of immense value. Yeah. I mean, right at the beginning, you mentioned that this is um, the Institute's not just about moral values, but is about spiritual values as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm guessing that that is why the word spiritual is is needed there and because it yes. is about bringing in um these sort of deeper or wider facets of 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 life and and creating the ways to, of knowing how to relate to them through ritual through meditation and and just for the quality of time i guess that people have with each other oh yes and go <clears throat> going back to your point about about vision too um this this aspect this open to the transcendent um is i think where we have to allow ourselves to be in order to address the challenges of our time which are so enormous and so intractable there's no rule book for to how to deal with the ecological crisis or the migration crisis or with the un unrest and they're all enormous problems. They're not usually confined within national boundaries, really, and trying to deal with them within national boundaries is usually missing quite important aspects of them. Uh, and to, to cultivate a mind which is open to what it has not yet seen, uh, it seems to me to be critical to being a great leader and public servant today. So you use the expression there as well, the wonderful being open to that which is not yet known. Um, yes. and, and love is a very fascinating dynamic in this context, I think, because what love does is it, it does two things. It both um, draws us towards that which we don't yet know and through being drawn mm -hmm. to say that which is beautiful or that which we feel in our souls. Um, it keeps us kind of orientated um, mm -hmm. uh, towards that. But at the same time, it um, it prepares us for the reception of more, you might say, through formation, through conversion, often through suffering and struggle, actually. Yes. Um, you know, not knowing yes. is it can be rather romanticized. But, you know, with you can refer to to Keats and negative capability and so on, which is part yeah. of it. Um, but it can be a place of real suffering and fear as well. Mm. Yes. Um, and I know that yes, you thought I, I, about this in um, in your writing, particularly. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 mm. that's something, I guess, which we need to work out how to 
support and uh, uh, and yeah. be with in public life too, given all these huge problems. It's and it's really tricky because that uh, I, I think it really is part of openness to the unknown is a realization of our own helplessness and also a kind of penitence at having got things wrong in the past. Particularly, it seems to me relative. Uh, um, uh, relevant to the ecological crisis uh, and when you are particularly public facing so a politician let's say you are expected to know or well, that's what people are telling you they want they want you to give them answers to tell them what's going to happen to deal with things and the space within which you can say i got it wrong uh, or i don't know the space within which you can express your helplessness is where is that space? It's certainly not in public. And, but, but it, I think that that experience of helplessness, which is painful, is a precondition to openness to the unknown, because that's the point when you say, okay, whatever, however, the whatever the response is, I, I can't see it. So I need to uh, ask for it, ask for it look for it be open to be porous so and how do you do that when you've got this thick shell-like carapace around you that 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 you need because of this pitiless public gaze it's really really hard for leaders today really hard particularly politicians we don't we don't give them any leeway I, I'm wondering whether, um, you know, the military has something to teach us here, actually. Um, yeah. I come from a military family and we're speaking quite soon after Remembrance Day yes. and um, all those rituals that take place in public life. And it's very striking that there are things like two minute silence. There, there is the use of music um, mm. and there's remembering what's gone wrong um, as much mm. as uh, hoping for yeah. better tomorrows um yeah. and uh, you you you, and you mentioned that you um have worked with people um in military public life as, mm. as well as political and journalistic and so on yeah. and is that intuition of mine does that make some sense oh very very much so yes there's a there's a huge amount to learn uh, and it strikes me it's not just silences there's also animals so i was at the field of remembrance service outside st margaret's this year and uh and the mascot for oh, i don't know which regiment it was it was a beautiful irish wolfhound came walking alongside the commanding officer to greet uh, the queen queen camilla uh and and that melts your heart. I mean, beautifully behaved dog walking alongside, but there's something so beautiful about the human animal uh, connection that was evident there. And then, and of course, the, the two minute silence is presaged with the um, bugle, the, what's it called? The last, oh, what's it called? The, the bugle plays the, the last, last post, yeah. Post. And that is yeah. so moving. Probably not a dry eye in the in the fields. Uh, uh, so, isn't it interesting that these hard-edged people who have to do horrendous things on our behalf have so much emotion and ritual woven into 
their work is if there's a deep understanding of what a human being is and what a human being needs. Um, it's also true that the armed forces spend hours and hours and hours and hours on leadership in a way that the metro, the metro or the police uh, force simply doesn't. Uh, and we certainly don't with our, with our political leaders. It takes leadership. The armed forces take leadership so seriously and, and try to learn. Um, and also the mindset, which is so critical for today of learning from mistakes, which means you have to own up to them. That's there too. Uh, not, I mean, not all the time and no institution is perfect. There are plenty of problems also within the armed forces, but, but, um, but there's a lot of wisdom there too, which we can learn from. And yes, they, we, that, that's a conversation that happens with the fellows. Um, Mm. That's 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 very fascinating. That we begin to draw to a close for now, at least. Thanks so much for um, all that you've been saying, and and I just wondered um, whether there was anything further that was kind of in your mind that I haven't um, guided us towards that you feel mm. is worth saying. Um, the other thing is that um, I know that you do use um, principles from religious traditions to help orientate this as well particularly christianity mm. and notions like mm. asking what love of neighbor um non-human mm. as well as human neighbors of course um so returning to these kind of basic principles um which often reference love feels part of it too but um any any sort of final thought or comment i think i just want to throw in the the response to the ecological crisis uh, and the thinking and writing I've done about that, which gets woven into my work with public public servants. But uh, I think it's, we, we have inherited a mindset from, I guess, the enlightenment um, of, which is, which objectifies nature and ultimately objectifies each other. The sense of being separate, individualized beings who have to, forge relationship one as a one plus one plus one uh and i think there's a really urgent need to because it's like it's almost like an enslavement to a way of seeing the world uh, uh there's really urgent need to free ourselves from that because it's that mindset which caused the problems in the first place and we're still using that mindset even as we try to deal with the problems even as we acknowledge that we have a a serious crisis upon us. We're still thinking, how can we control the environment? How can we control nature to make it give us what we want when we want it still? Um, uh, oh, but just do it, you know, without using fossil fuels. Uh, but the, it's the mindset that needs to change from a buffered mindset, where which is separated to a porous mindset, which is not separated. And we, and that is falling in love again, falling in love with ourselves, with the world about us and being open to it and seeing how we can serve it, not how we can dominate and control it. Look, let me, let me ask, I mean, it's, it, that's, a, that's a, a very visionary statement um, and I'm sure it's right. I mean, I often think about it in terms of how we can participate with the wider world yeah. around us and that's a kind of complementary yeah. notion to the porous yeah. notion that we're part of very rich ecologies and some of it we're familiar with some of it may contain beings creatures 
um, that are very strange to us. And I reach out even to spiritual ecologies as well as um, the material world. Um, but that yes. that's, that's a tremendous vision. Again, is it possible just to reflect on what enables that? What kind of context? Where where have you seen that um, yeah. at least nascently happening yes. um, as you've been thinking about um, that huge paradigm shift? Yes, I, I see it where you have the glimmerings of um, penitence and helplessness uh, in 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 us. Uh, which brings you then to a place where you are asking for help, uh, to a place of discipleship rather than cr critic. And you can then find yourself transformed, bringing that to disciple attitude by a text, by communion with nature. Um, you can, you we do experience it uh, when we fall in love because we become vulnerable to the other and we would do anything to care for the other. So that's, that is a taste of it. Uh, so it's, it's there, it's, it's around us, but, but I think to be more aware of the need for it, to be more aware of our helplessness and to be more penitent, uh, not in a self individual, specifically not in an individual way, but just in a sense of sharing a responsibility for a state of, of humanity in the world, um, we could cultivate that more. <laughs> we need to cultivate that more. Look, thank, uh, thank you very much. Um, let, let's, let's end there. Um, it's been very rich, um, what you've said. Um, thanks very much um, for bringing all the expertise to the conversation. Um, and. Um, I hope we'll speak again. Me too, Mark. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. And thank you for your thoughts and questions.